Well, when there is uncertainty or fear, it becomes difficult at times to work out who to trust. Uh, we have a very live issue at the moment with lockdowns and vaccines and COVID and hotel quarantine, and our different leaders give us different viewpoints and different opinions. And we might think certain leaders are doing well and certain leaders are not doing well. And often that changes. I've noticed uh, my friends uh, in Sydney are less smug, perhaps, than they were earlier. And hopefully we are less smug as well. But when times are troubled, it's often hard to know who to turn to. And often when we look to our leaders, we find them perhaps less certain than we would like. Before we start throwing stones, by the way, our church leaders have also let us down deeply as well. Our church is littered with leaders who have failed to uphold what it means to be a Christian leader, to lead with humility and grace and love. And so it's a challenge that we face continually. Who or what do we trust when times are difficult? Well, this is the question at hand when we come to Isaiah chapter 28. We are continuing our series uh, in the book of Isaiah, who has been prophesying to God's people, primarily in the southern kingdom of Judah. Although we'll notice today he spends a little bit of time pointing the finger north. And as he prophesies, he's prophesying both God's judgment, but also God's hope. That God's people will turn from their rebellion and sin and failure to care for the weak and oppressed and turn to God and, and receive a blessing. And the big issue in Isaiah's day wasn't COVID, it was the superpower of Assyria. A superpower with an appetite to increase its control of its empire and the twin kingdoms of Israel and Judah are small fry, seemingly helpless against this unstoppable power. So what will God's people do when they face this threat? When their very extinction is seemingly on the line, well, will they trust God? Will they trust something or someone else? Well, sadly, the reality is that for both kingdoms, primarily led by bad leaders, they actually turn from trusting God, but in both cases, they actually, in this text, we see trust something different. And in both cases, God will respond both with judgment, but also beautifully with hope. And the first one, very interestingly, actually, is uh, we see the response of the northern kingdom. Now, this is unusual because... Uh, Isaiah is primarily preaching to the southern kingdom. The kingdom had split uh, after Solomon. And we see in verse 28 that Ephraim, which is the name given to the northern kingdom here, because that's the biggest tribe, or Israel as is often called, ha has made its refuge or its pride, not in God, but in their own prosperity. We see in verse 1, woe to that wreath, the pride of Ephraim's drunkards, to the fading flower, his glorious beauty set on the head of a fertile valley. To that city, the pride of those laid low by wine. Now, because Ephraim was the largest city, uh, largest uh, tribe, it's the kind of collective noun for all those tribes that make up the northern kingdom, which 
is called Israel as well, which makes things a little bit confusing because sometimes both the northern and the southern kingdoms are called Israel, but just hang in there. Uh, and the capital city of Ephraim and of the northern kingdom is Samaria. And Samaria was a, an amazing city, and the imagery of a wreath that Isaiah uses is a very poignant metaphor for at least three reasons. Firstly, it actually describes the beauty of the city. Samaria was actually on a hill, in a low hill, surrounded by a fertile valley filled with vineyards, and it kind of symbolizes that beautiful floral wreath. It was a beautiful town that you'd want to go visit for the weekend. And secondly, that idea of a wreath picks up the culture of the city. Uh, in ancient times, you would wear a wreath to party. It's your party gear. Uh, to celebrate, it was a symbol of decadence, a symbol of rejoicing and drinking and partying. In other words, this city is the crown of pride. For the city, it's the crown of their pride. They're boasting in their providence, in their blessing in their prosperity. Yet there's an element of smugness here in Samaria. Uh, you can see that idea of pride, of smugness, uh, repeated twice in verse 1 and then again in verse 3. They are proud, so proud in fact, they are partying in their decadence. Look how great we are. We are an awesome city. See, this kingdom is actually not worried about the Assyrian threat at all. They have pride in their decadence and prosperity. It's the most livable city in the Near East for the last five years. So we're here to party. They've got laneways with single origin coffee. Why would they go anywhere else? And the nation's rulers are a lot of drunkards. They've totally gone into this spirit of partying and celebrating their decadence. And they live only to please themselves. They actually don't even care about the welfare of other people. They're so self-centered in their own enjoyment, they've forgotten their responsibilities as leaders. So the wreath symbolizes the beauty of the city and the wreath symbolizes the culture of the city. And thirdly, the wreath symbolizes the coming judgment upon this city that thinks it has it together. Notice in verse 1, it's referred to as a fading flower. Yes, it's a wreath, but it's starting to turn. The pride of Ephraim is destined to fade and be judged. And because they are referred to as heavy wine drinkers, they are likened, not uncharacteristically, to a, a vineyard. And in verse 2 we read that there's a severe hailstorm on the way, which is a symbol of the Assyrian invasion. And this hailstorm will destroy the vineyard. Enemy soldiers will trample the grapes underfoot and steal the harvest. And the result will, in verse 3, that wreath, the pride of Ephraim's drunkards, will be trampled underfoot. Now, uh, back when you could go on holidays and plan them, uh, I had a holiday with my family when I was a kid at the beach uh, in southern New South Wales. And we went down to the local beach in the morning and surprisingly, nobody was in the water. And it was a beautiful, glorious day and uh, so we decided we'd swim out uh, and enjoy a, a beautiful swim in the ocean. It was beautiful and warm. And then we saw a pod of dolphins. And this is 
fantastic celebration. And the people on the shore were waving to us, saying, look, hi, yes, and we waved back to them furiously and saying, yes, we see the dolphins, it's exciting. They kept waving to us and eventually we came in and that they weren't dolphins. It was a, a, a what's the word, pack of sharks that had actually been attacking a whale carcass. Uh, and they weren't waving it as friendly. It was a warning, get out of the water, you morons. But we were completely imperious to the, to the, we were unaware of the disaster and danger that we were in. And that's, that's the situation with Samaria of Ephraim. They don't see the danger, and so they don't think they need a saviour. And friends, that can be the same with us. We become prideful in our own abilities, in our own righteousness, in our own prosperity, that we cannot see the need for humility and the need for a saviour. And so it's a warning to an affluent culture. As Jesus himself said, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter God's kingdom. Because Ephraim thought they already had heaven on earth. But yet in 722 BC, the Assyrians attack Samaria and after a siege, they take the town and they take the people captive. The wreath is taken off the head and thrown in the fire. But Isaiah wonderfully promises, uh, God does through Isaiah, that that's actually not the end of the story. There is still hope for the few who remain faithful for God. They will not be forsaken. In fact, in a beautiful use of the language, God says, actually, I will be your wreath, the thing that you take pride in, the thing of beauty, the thing of prosperity. Look at verses 5 and 6. In that day, the Lord Almighty will be a glorious crown, a beautiful wreath for the remnants of his people. Unlike the leaders, he will be a spirit of justice to the one who sits in judgment and a source of strength to those who turn back the battle at the gates. See, God is, is reminding us here that we boast not in our own abilities, but in the strength and beauty of our God. Well, that was Samaria, sorry, and, and particularly the northern kingdom's response to uncertainty, to boast in themselves their own prosperity. And then Isaiah spends a bit more time focusing on his own area of influence in Judah, the southern kingdom, and particularly the people and leaders of Jerusalem. And here they seek refuge, not in God and not in themselves, but instead in the power of another nation. Things, by the way, are not good in Judah either. Once again, there is a crisis of leadership. In verses 7 and 8, we read that the leaders are drunk and incompetent. It seems to be a recurring theme. Uh, rather than, than leading and looking after God's people, they are literally, to quote our premier, getting on the beers. I've never seen so much beer mentioned in so few verses. Verse 7. And these also stagger from wine and reel from beer. Priests and prophets stagger from beer and are befuddled with wine. They reel from beer. You get the idea, right? 
They are so obsessed with their own enjoyment that they failed in their responsibilities. They failed in their care to look after the people entrusted to them. They stagger when seeing visions. They stumble when rendering decisions. In other words, they're failing in their God-given responsibilities to care for people. Now, the table, the table in the Old Testament was meant to be a symbol of hospitality and of welcome and of blessing. It's meant to be a thing of beauty and excitement and enticement that you would run to. But have a look at verse 8 at what has happened with these leaders. It is a gross and vile picture. All the tables are covered with vomit. And there is not a spot without filth. Can you imagine the stench if someone invited you around for lunch and you were excited because you heard they were quite a good cook? They'd mastered sourdough baking in lockdown, right? They're good cooks. And you turn up and the table is literally covered and dripping with vomit. It's meant to be a disgusting and disturbing image. See, these are leaders that we are meant to recoil from. Secondly, these leaders have a complete disregard for God's word. We see this in verses 9 and 10. And the leaders are upset with Isaiah because he keeps preaching this same message again and again and again. Turn back to God, repent. Turn back to God, repent. And look what they say in verse 9. Who is it he's trying to teach? To whom is he explaining his message? To children weaned from milk? To those just taken from the breast? In other words, look, Isaiah, your message, it's for babies. We are far too mature, grown up for this simple message of turn back to God. You can hear the arrogance in their tone, can't you? And particularly in verse 10. For it is, do this, do that. A rule for this, a rule for that, a little here, a little there. In fact, in the original language, it's actually just baby babble. It's like saying, that's, that's how you would literally translate verse 10 from Hebrew. It is. You go look it up. It's, that's, that's what they're saying. That's what we think of God's word. And so Isaiah responds in verse 11. Look, if you can't listen to God's simple and clear words, so simple that a baby can understand them, if that's your problem, very well, he says in verse 11, with foreign lips and strange tongues, God will speak to his people. To whom he said, this is a resting place, let the weary rest, and this is a place of repose. But they would not listen. See, God has actually promised them true peace, a place of repose, a place of refuge. But they have refused to listen. It's just baby guff. And so instead, God will then speak to them in a different language, another language they will don't understand, a foreign language, the language of the invading Assyrians and Babylonians. That's the language they'll hear. That's the babble they will hear as God sends the Assyrians and then the Babylonians against them to punish them and actually take them away into captivity. 
And so God turns their words around them in verse 13. So then the word of the Lord to them will become, do this, do that. A little rule, a rule for this, a rule for that, a little here, little there. So that they, as they go, they will fall backwards. They will be injured and snared and captured. They failed to take God's word seriously. And now they'll face God's judgment. And unsurprisingly, this leads to the third problem with these leaders. They don't trust God. See, Judah's leaders know they're not strong enough to stand against Assyria. Uh, to be conquered by Assyria, by the way, in their, in their world, is, is the idea of death and destruction and exile and alienation. It's a loss of identity and culture. They lose everything if Assyria invades successfully. And so what Judah's leaders do instead is to ensure that doesn't happen is to make an alliance with another strong power, Egypt. Right? That's the best thing to do. If you've got a bully, find another bully and become friends with that bully. And that's what God's people do. In other words, they trust Egypt to be their refuge and their saviour. Save us, Egypt, from this coming threat. But God sees it as an act of rebellion. Look at verse 15. You boast, we have entered into a covenant. Um, Not with life, not with safety. With death. With the realm of the dead, we have made an agreement. When an overwhelming scourge sweeps by, it cannot touch us. We have made a lie our refuge and a falsehood for, and falsehood our hiding place. See, what Isaiah is teaching the people of Jerusalem and us is this. That our hearts long for a place of security and refuge. And if God is not your security and your refuge and your saviour, you will turn to something else. You will turn to something else. It could be your own abilities and prosperity. That's what we saw in the northern kingdom. It could be power and influence. That's what we saw in in Judah's turning to, to Egypt. It could be a noble cause. It could be financial independence. A university degree. A fulfilling career. Your intelligence. The market. Romance. Marriage, kids, health. You could even turn to your ministry and point to that and say, that will give me security. That will be my refuge. By the way, most of these things are really good things. The problem occurs is when you say, you are my refuge. You are my hiding place. You are my security. You are my identity. You are my hope. And when that happens, God's word tells us we have entered into a covenant, not with life, but with death. Now, why does he use such strong words? He couldn't say, look, that is not going to work very well. He says death. Well, he's making a point that's very clear. It's death because these things cannot save us they actually cannot be a refuge they put our lives in peril 
And like Judah, when we reject God's offer of peace and prosperity, when we don't trust him, we face his judgment. See, the only way to tell that we have a genuine safe refuge or a secure hiding place is not when things are going well, but when things are going badly, when there's trouble. That's how you really test whether your refuge or your safe or your security works. It's when the thing you're relying on is actually put to the test. You know when your parachute works when you jump out of the plane. That's when you test it. On the ground, pull the chute. Oh, okay. Maybe. You don't need it till you jump out of the plane. And so what happens when our refuge fails? When we lose that job? When you lose your financial independence? When the doctor tells you the news that you did not want to hear? That's when you realise that your refuge is woefully inadequate. They promise so much, yet when push comes to shove, when the harsh reality of life comes, they fail. I love the image in verse 20. The bed is too short to stretch out on and the blanket too narrow to wrap around you. That's, that's the picture of our man-made, our human, uh, our, our human refuge. Neither cover the facts nor meet the needs for life. And so many of our problems come from this. It doesn't matter whether you're a strong Christian or a weak Christian or not even a Christian. And so often the reason we feel anger and fear and guilt and boredom and anxiety is because we rely on other things other than the Lord Jesus as our refuge. We have made a lie our refuge and falsehood our hiding place. So let me make this real and personal. What is your refuge and hiding place? What do you turn to to ensure that your life has security, has purpose, has meaning or to put it another way what is functioning more than Jesus as your saviour it is an uncomfortable question because it cuts to the depths of our hearts so what's the solution what can we turn to then for security, for refuge, and for genuine life? We'll have a listen to these beautiful promises in verses 16 and 17. So this is what the sovereign Lord says. See, I lay a stone in Zion. Zion is just another word for Jerusalem. A tested stone, a precious cornerstone. For a sure foundation. Uh, in Isaiah's day, as our own, um, foundation stones, cornerstones, often had an inscription on them. 
an inscription that described the purpose of the building. In fact, St. Jude's has a number. And so here's a little challenge for you, particularly kids if you're bored after church. Go around and see if you can find all of St. Jude's little foundation stones and see what they say on them. But listen to the inscription on this stone. The one who relies on it will never be stricken with panic. That is what's written on this stone. The one who relies on it will never be stricken by panic. In other words, here is a refuge and a safe space that you can trust in. That brings life. How can this foundation be so secure? Well, it's because of the quality of the workmanship and the materials. See, a sure foundation is one that has to be built well with quality and accurate tools to make sure it's level and and straight. Verse 17. I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the plumb line. Hail will sweep away, sweep away your refuge, the lie and water will overflow your hiding place, the inference being, but it won't this one. This will survive the storm, which picks up a, a really powerful story Jesus shares about building your house upon a rock, as opposed to the shifting sands of this world. See, what Isaiah is ultimately prophesying here is that day of righteous when the Messiah, the Christ, God's promised king, will come and usher in this new day for God's people, for Israel as a whole. And this precious cornerstone is ultimately, of course, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. But there is a certain irony about Jesus as our cornerstone. See, because he wore not a wreath of prosperity and pride like Samaria, even though he actually was a man without sin, he actually wore instead a humble and humiliating crown of thorns. And he is our refuge and hiding place, not because he is more powerful than Egypt, which of course he is, but because he gave up that power and he took our place and he died our death to release us from our covenant with death. We are released from our covenant with death and have eternal life. See, friends, the safest ground, the safest ground, the safest ground is at the foot of the cross. May that be your pride. May that be your refuge. May that be your hiding place. Come to him. The living stone, says Peter rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him. You also, like living stones, have been built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, see, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone. And the one who trusts in him 
will never be put to shame. Amen.